welcome to Cross the Pun. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfner there. And you're listening to the show where we take up curious theological topics to, to excite the imagination, to enrich the mind, to engage the heart, all with the comfort of the gospel, uh, the wisdom of God's law, the peace that he wants to give us in hearing his word. It's just, it's absolutely fantastic. Now, I don't, this morning, this morning, this afternoon, we got two things we want to do. We want to have a opening monologue. That's our style. And we're going to have Pastor Jeff Boyle come on and join us. For the opening monologue, i got two options. So i got a poll going on Facebook right now. There's a, the options are our Epicurean culture and the three places that the devil attacks. It looks like it's three to eight on the poll for the three places the devil attacks. So let's talk about that. The poll is now closed. The devil attacks God's word. Now, we know that from the very beginning. Remember how it was in the Garden of Eden when the devil came to Adam and Eve and he said, the first thing he says was, did God really say that the the Lord has established his church in the Garden of Eden where where Adam and Eve could come and believe the word of God, believe what God did say? What God said was, if you eat of it, on the day that you eat of it, you you will surely die or dying you will die. There's going to be a double death on your on the day that you're eating the fruit so uh, so don't eat it adam and eve were to go to the go to the tree and believe what god said even though they couldn't see what god said they were to believe what god said and and by believing the word they were to worship him by faith that's why god put the tree there in the garden but adam and eve went and instead of believing the preaching of god they believed the preaching of the devil so that the devil now attacks God's word by trying to pull God's word away and replace it with lies. This is the twofold move. He he steals away the seed and he adds in the tares. This is what Jesus says in the parable of the sower. Now, this is the the thing that we want to consider. I want to put this picture in your mind. He, Jesus says that uh, that there's a man who went out to go and sow seed, and he and the, he throws the seed out, and some falls on the path. Some falls in the rocks, some falls in the weeds, some falls on the good ground. I've been thinking a lot about this parable. In fact, this this parable is giving shape to the book that I'm just right in the middle of of um, of giving birth to, finishing this book up, an extended treatment of this parable, how the devil attacks the word. And Jesus says, here's 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 the picture of it. Here's the threefold attack. The some seed goes onto the path, and the birds snatch it up. Some seed goes on the rocks, and the sun beats it down. Some seed goes in the weeds and the pleasures of life. The weeds choke it out. But some seed falls on the good ground, and that's what gives birth to a fruit of a hundredfold and thirtyfold and sixtyfold and so forth. So you got to see in, in your mind this picture of a sower. Now, the, I, I think there's all sorts of fancy devices that we use for planting seeds now, but the picture is of a man out there with a with a satchel over his shoulder full of seed and he takes a handful of seed and he simply throws it into the air and the seed goes and lands and if we can use that picture if we can use the picture of a man with a satchel full of seed who's throwing the seed into the air and then the seed is landing on the ground if we can have that picture in our imagination so you can close your eyes if you're driving don't do this very long, but have this picture in your imagination of the man sowing the seed. And think of the three places where the birds can go after the seed. The birds can go after the seed in the satchel that's at the man's side. The birds can go after the seed as it's in the air. And the birds can go after the seed once it hits the ground. That's what chiefly they're doing. They're grabbing it up before it gets planted. And so that picture becomes a, a great illustration of the three places that the, 
that the devil attacks the preaching of God's word. The devil attacks the preaching of God's word at the very source of God's word. The devil attacks the preaching of God's word when it's on its way to us. And the devil attacks the preaching of the word when it gets to us. So the source and the way and the, and the place where it lands. And we can understand that as the source of God's word, which would be the throne room of God in heaven, that's where the prophets come forth from. That's where the word of God comes forth from, the, the, the throne of God in heaven. And then the second is the way of the, of the word to us, and that's in the ministry. It's in the church. It's in the liturgy. It's in the preaching of God's word. It's in the delivery system of God's word. And then the place where God's word is to be planted, the ground is the heart. So the devil attacks at the source and on the way and at the heart. Now, that probably is enough for us to sort of get our head around, but the Bible tells us even more about how the devil attacks in those places. Especially for for the devil attacking in the heavenly throne room, we have that picture, that somewhat horrible picture of Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2 where it says that the the sons of God were gathered around the throne of God and that is a picture of the of the angels being gathered to the heavenly throne room and who has a place there none other than the devil himself who goes to accuse Job to God in fact Job is brought up by God himself have you considered my servant Job a, a, there's a, he's a righteous man and so forth and and it's good for us to remember that Job is righteous not because he accomplished all sorts of good works because he was holier than anybody else Job was a sinner just like you're a sinner just like I'm a sinner but Job was declared righteous by God in heaven that's the doctrine of justification and, and the devil says well he only has that and he only knows of it because you've given him such a great life you take away his life and and now he'll curse you and die and so forth so the devil comes down but the point is the devil the devil has a place there to stand and accuse job in the heavenly throne room now the thing we want to bring against that understanding is revelation 12 which tells us about how jesus after his death and his resurrection comes into that heavenly throne room with the evidence with the of his victory with his blood and it and it's like a flood comes into the heavenly throne and just washes away the the devil's place so you see, it's it's almost like if you could picture a room and there the, there's a throne or a, a seat and it says devil and Jesus comes up and he comes with his blood and that chair is just washed away. There's a war, Revelation 12 says, that breaks out in heaven and, and Michael and his archangels fought against the devil and his angels, but the devil didn't prevail and there was no longer, this is how it says it in Revelation 12, there was no longer any place for the devil in heaven anymore. So the accuser, the accuser of our brethren who accused them before the throne of God day and night was cast out. So th this is the point, and it's not, it, I don't think we should understand it chronologically, but rather theologically. When the blood of Jesus prevails in the heavenly throne, there's no longer any place for the devil. There's no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the, who, God who justifies, who is it that condemns, and so forth. This is, Revela this is a, a, a Romans 8, which is an exposition of Revelation 12, or vice versa. That, that heavenly throne room, there's a lot's happening there, and some show will have to take up the five things that are happening around the heavenly throne, but one of the things that ha is happening in the heavenly throne is that there's a case being heard, the case about your salvation and the case about my salvation. And as that case is being heard, the devil is there, Satan, doing his Sataning work. He's accusing. But Jesus comes in as our advocate. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, First John 3. And so Jesus brings into that heavenly throne room the evidence of his blood, the evidence of his crucifixion, the evidence of his sacrifice in our place. He brings it there, and that prevails before God the Father so that there's no, uh, so that there's no way we can be accused. There's no way we can be guilty. The devil says, uh, just to, 
for me, the devil says, look at what, all the sinful things that Brian has done. And, and Jesus, as my advocate, stands there and says, objection, Your Honor, that sin has died for. Objection, Your Honor, that sin is covered by my blood. Objection, Your Honor, that sin has already been suffered for by my death on the cross. Objection, objection. Jesus is there objection to object to all of the devil's claims over us and God the Father is there as judge saying sustain, 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 sustain so that the devil has no case to make in the heavenly throne room. So while he might try to, to grab the seed out of the satchel, the place where the seed comes forth, he can't do it. He has no place to do it anymore for you. This is the greatest good news. But still the seed has to be thrown into the air and still it has to land. There's still two other places where the devil can attack the word. So the devil, we talked about the place where the word originates, but now the word has to get from heaven down to us and to our hearts. And so there's the ministry of the word, the way the word is delivered to us, and then there's the place where the word comes. So because the devil can't get the seed out of the satchel, he goes for the seed in the air. He attacks the preaching of the word, and he does this in all sorts of different ways. He attacks the church. He attacks the truth of the doctrine. He attacks the publishing of God's Word. He attacks you getting to church. It's why getting to church is harder than getting anywhere else in the world except perhaps the dentist. <laughs> Sorry, Dr. Kleekamp, to say that. It's tough for me to get... Who likes to go to the dentist anyway? But getting to church is hard. It's like it's, it seems supernaturally difficult sometimes. Well, it's just going down the street and going into a room and sitting there. It doesn't. It's not actually that hard. And yet the devil wants to do everything to prevent you from getting to church. And then and he wants to he wants to do everything he can to prevent you from hearing and believing what your pastor says. He wants you to despise the man standing there preaching God's word. He's 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 always after the 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 means, the delivery system, the way of getting there. I, I think the devil's chief thing here is that he has convinced the church so many theologies, so many um, teachers, so many confessions. To say that God's word is not efficacious, you, you know, efficacious means powerful or efficient. It causes, it causes what it says. So that when the Lord says, "Let there be light," there's light. There's power in that word. There's a dynamos in the gospel. There's there's something that when the Lord says it, it happens. But the but so many, so many confessions say no. It's not the power is not in God's word. You have to accept it. You have to respond to it. You have to you have to make it powerful in yourself. And th and this goes into a secondary denial of the power of God's word, which is a denial of baptism and the Lord's supper. People say that baptism is just our first act of obedience. That the supper is our meal of remembrance. And all of this is a way of denying the efficacy or the power of the of the word of God. And the devil does this on purpose. If the devil can cut off the supply line from heaven to earth, if he can cut off the means that the that the grace of God is getting to us, the means of grace, then he can cut us off from the grace of God. If if you can imagine it like a war, and there the guys are on the front. So there's the front lines, and then you have the the kind of guys in the back and you have the supply lines that are delivering the ammunition and food and everything the, the medical supplies to the soldiers on the front lines the, the, one of the strategies in war is to attack the supply lines and you starve the guys on the front out they don't have any bullets they don't have any food they don't have any medicine this sort of thing well the devil attacks the supply lines he tries to snatch the the word as it flies through the air, as it's going from heaven to you, he attacks the preachers, he attacks the preaching, he attacks the liturgy, he attacks the church, he attacks baptism, he attacks the Lord's Supper, he attacks the doctrine of the Word, the doctrine of the Supper. This is all the devil's attempt to undermine the gospel getting to us. I remember we used to go, uh, when I was a little kid, 
as growing up in Kerrville, Texas, and we'd go down to the coast for um, uh, for for family vacation, and all the seagulls were there, and we used to love this. It was a favorite thing is you could throw food in the air, and the seagulls would fly in and snatch it right out of the air before it even hit the ground. That's how the devil is for God's word, and that's why when we say, why is there so much trouble in the church? Well, we don't have to wonder. The devil is always troubling the church because he wants to trouble the the word. And then the third place, so as the seed is flying through the air, the devil's after it. But then the third place is the devil attacks the preaching of the word as it comes into our heart. The devil wants us to doubt God's word. The devil wants us to disbelieve God's word. The devil wants us to despair of the gospel. He wants to choke out repentance. He wants to say that the law doesn't apply to us or that we've kept the law altogether. He wants us to say that the gospel doesn't apply to us, that it's for other people, but we've out even the Lord's grace and mercy and that we are to be condemned. He, the, Lord, the devil comes to us to tempt us all the time to say that the Lord is a liar. And 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 this is the way to explain all of the trouble and all of the temptation that that comes to us as Christians. That the devil comes and he attacks the word of God that's planted in our heart. He even he attacks the word that's spoken to us, which means that the devil's kind of first level of attack is attacking our baptism. There's this great little line in Tertullian. He didn't. I'm. I have to admit that I'm not a huge fan of Tertullian. You, you read. You know, you read the first paragraph of what I'm about to mention, like, wow, I bet there's a lot of good stuff. And then you keep reading it. I just I confess it, it gets a little bit disappointing. But in, in the beginning of his little tract on baptism, the church father Tertullian says, says that, uh, that, that the devil knows that we are like little fish that follow our big fish, Christ. Remember the, the word for fish in Greek is ichthus, and if you take those letters and you make it into an acronym, it's Jesus Christ's God's Son Savior, ichthus, and so the, the idea of the ichthus, the, the, the confession of Christ being a, a sign or a mark of the Christian goes way, way back. And Tertullian says, we are like little fishes following around our big fish, Christ, and the, and the, and the terrible monster, the devil, knows how to destroy fish. He removes us from the water. So the devil is trying to tempt us out of the gifts that God has given us in our baptism. We, we see this when we see, for example, the temptation of Jesus. Remember how it is? You can go and see in Matthew chapter 3 and chapter 4 that Jesus goes into the waters of baptism and that God the Father speaks from heaven, this booming voice, one of three times that we hear the voice of God the Father in the New Testament. God the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And then Jesus is driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. And what's the first thing the devil says? If you are the Son of God, tell the story. Or turn the stone into bread, or if you are the son of God, jump off the tower. Jesus, Jesus hears the voice, you are my son, and then the devil comes along and says, if. He causes us to question that word. He wants Jesus to even question the word that's spoken to him in baptism, and the devil does the same thing for us. He comes, he comes along to, 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 to ask us, to invite us, to tempt us, to question the sure promise that God speaks to us in our baptism, that we are his sons and his daughters. That we're baptized, that we're that we're saved, that we're forgiven, that we're rescued from sin, death, and the devil, that we've died with him through baptism into death, in order that just as he has risen from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That the devil comes to tempt us to disbelieve the word that's spoken to us in the gospel, the word that's delivered to us in our baptism. So the devil is always attacking the word. You can know that. The devil is always attacking the word that's being preached to you and that you are hearing and that you are believing. The devil's always attacking. But Jesus has won the victory. The reason why he is so furious is because he knows that his time is short. 
He knows that the lamb slain sits on the throne. He knows that his word will prevail and that his word prevails with us. So we're not ignorant of the devil's devices, nor are we afraid. We know that we resist him and he'll flee from us. Not because of the strength that we have, some sort of spiritual strength, but because of the strength of God's word. <laughs> oh, God be praised for that. The three places the devil attacks, but these are the three places that God's word prevails. Hey, you're listening to Cross Defense. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. We're going to go to the break now, and we are going to come back with Pastor Jeff Boyle. I wonder what he, I've, I've got no idea what he's got in mind for us. Last time he brought us the Iliad. Who, who knows if he can be even stranger than that. He's going to give us something to talk about and something to think about. So stay tuned for the break. We'll be right back. This week on Issues Etc., we'll have Pastor Brian Wolfmiller introduce us to the book of Joel. We'll continue our series on the U.S. Constitution, talking with Dr. Russell Dawn about the 16th Amendment, which empowered the federal government to tax our income, and we'll discuss the diversity delusion on college campuses with Heather McDonald. Issues Etc., live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. Martin Luther said that next to the Word of God, music deserves the highest praise. At St. Paul's Music Conservatory in Council Bluffs, Iowa, we believe that music is a vehicle for the gospel. Through the creation of resources based on our historic hymns of the faith, we seek not only to develop students musically, but also to develop them for service in the church. To learn more about our resources, visit our website, www.stpaulsmusicconservatory.org. St. Paul's Music Conservatory, where music serves. I'm free to be faithful, moderator Kip Allen. The midterm elections are over with changes in both the House and the Senate. What do these changes mean for people of faith? Washington Observer Tim Gigline shares his observations on free to be faithful Wednesday at 2.30 and Saturday at 9.30 on Worldwide KFUO. Did you know that your individual retirement account may make the best gift to KFUO? The IRS now allows individuals 70 and a half or older to transfer their required minimum distribution directly to charity and avoid paying the associated income tax. These gifts can provide regular long-term resources to KFUO. If you have questions about making an IRA gift to KFUO, call me, Mary, at 314-996-1518. We'll send a representative out to help answer your questions and help you establish a legacy of giving to your favorite radio station, Worldwide KFUO. Hey, welcome back to Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. We were just talking about the three places the devil attacks God's word. Uh, and I, I kind of, Pastor Boyle, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Brian? Uh, good. I, we were talking about how the devil attacks God's word of the Heavenly Council, and then in the preaching, and then in the in the Christian heart. Any, uh, I don't know if you heard the last part of that. Do you have any, you should correct me or add something to it. <laughs> no, I, I didn't hear anything needing correcting. It was, it was very good. Well, that means you weren't listening careful enough. <laughs> uh, I admit I was uh, trying to figure out what you wanted me to talk about for today. Yeah, that's a good question. Well, what is it? Have you sorted it out? Uh, well, we'll see. I think we, we may get there by the end of this. But um, I will tell you, that we've got this 
book club that meets. It's a bunch of pastors and members from our church once a month, and, and we try every month to read a book and discuss it. So whether we get through the whole book or not, that's beside the point. It typically will either be read in part or in full, or people just come for the discussion. But, but we're actually getting ready to meet tomorrow, and we're going to be discussing a massive book called Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body by Pope John Paul II. Ah. Have you yeah, looked at this? That, that's, um, uh, what is it called in Latin? Oh, you know, you would say that. Well, because um, is that, I mean, is that the, the so the theology of the body, I, I know. Um, no, so you're thinking Humane Vitae, which yes, was the right. papal encyclical, but pious. That, that was, um, that's undergirding a lot of this, but this, okay. is, um, this is actually a series of Wednesday, uh, he called them general audiences, and the Pope would just, uh, talk on Wednesday evenings, and there would be this massive crowd, and they were all recorded, and it spanned from, oh, September of 79 until around this time, late November of 1984. So it was, it was just this series that he would go through, and, and it was um, it's very uh, rigorous, detailed. There's a great deal of philosophy that goes into this, but what I've come to appreciate about it is it is taking these basic texts from the scriptures about the body, about our humanity, about marriage, about uh, human sexuality, and really painstakingly working his way through them. Now, now let, let, me, let me try to set up this yeah. thing, because um, people hear oh, Pope John Paul on the theology of the body— what does yeah. what so but but so let me, let's kind of ramp into this thing because why is it important and I, and I want to maybe throw something out there too it seems like there is a a constant temptation in our minds in our in our lives in our theologies there's a constant temptation towards gnosticism that is there's a constant yeah. temptation to separate the body from the what spirit or or to separate even matter from spiritual things and we think mm -hmm. to ourselves that the spiritual things are the good and the matter the stuff of the physical stuff of this world is bad and that that drive towards gnosticism stands it's in it's embedded in each one of us and it's embedded in every bad doctrine that that yep. that gnosticism that's there and that pulls us away from what, from an understanding of creation, of the incarnation, of our own humanity, our bodies, the resurrection? It's, it's undermining all of these major works that, that God has done. Is that, is that a good place to start? Oh, I would say absolutely. And I think that's really his starting point. Even, even very intentionally speaking of this as what sounds in our ears um, oxymoronic, a theology of the body. Uh, the body is the most atheological, we might think, or or most non-tied to who God is in Himself. So, how can you speak of theology, which is a really a, a study or a doctrine or teaching of God, and then apply that to the body, which is so uh, 
you know, we, we view it not only as created, which it is, but then we think of it as therefore being evil or bad. And, and what he's, Pope John Paul II is doing in this is, you know, while he doesn't speak so much of the Gnostics, he does address the Manichaeans, which, which bear that same idea that you've got a, a good god of the spirit and an evil god of the flesh, and they're at an eternal war with one another. Yeah, that kind of old dualism. Uh, yeah, th- th- I'm gonna. I want, kind of want to come back to that because the Catholics have always accused the Lutherans of being Manichaean. That was, I mean, that was one of their sort of philosophical charges to us. And, and so we had to. Mm-hmm. T- so the now to, to draw a line then between the old old conversations and the new stuff that we have now. The, the, this sort of Gnosticism would have been there. Underneath, like Socrates, you know, when Socrates drank the hemlock, and now he gets to go to the world of forms. He gets to leave behind the prison of his body, and his soul gets to be set free. That so yeah. that that Gnosticism was behind all the old philo- a, a lot and, of the old sort of yeah. mainstream of philosophy. Well, then let's put it in in so modern of terms that this morning I had a meeting with the mortuary with a family from my church who's. Uh, beloved mother uh, fell asleep in Christ last night. And so while we're there, I met with the family at the mortuary, and they're trying to figure out which vault to get for the casket and that sort of thing. And and the director said, well, what I like to say to people who believe is that, uh, you know, the person's not there at all. So you just pick whatever, you know, you want to pick. Yeah. That's amazing, and, isn't it? Oh, it's amazing. And, and here she is, and she's a well-skilled funeral director, uh, you know, no problem. But, but it's a sort of cliche that she's found that comforts people and works and, and leads them to do really what she and they want to do. Um, and that is pick the cheapest thing you can get, whatever it may be, um, because none of it matters. Yeah, yeah. Throw my body in the river. I'm not there anymore. That's just a shell, right. but that's, that's we could. I mean, we it's it's one of the most important parts of the funeral service is to put our hands on the body and say this yeah. body will raise. This right, is, right. This is, you have the same thing with, and so the whole question I think now maybe there's a little a couple of layers of complexity that we can add to it, but the, it's it's one of the same problems that we have when we're talking about the the whole question about um, uh, transsexuality is that the that I have a spirit and I have a body. And they're preaching a different word, right? So the body is preaching, I'm a man, but then my mind or my what is identified as myself, my inner life is preaching, I'm a woman. And so you have these competing, you have these competing preachings. And Gnosticism says, well, what's more important is the spirit, of course. The spirit not only is more important, the spirit is what's holy and pure. The body is something that's unholy and unpure. And in this case, the body is something that needs to be dominated that needs to be controlled by the spirit. It needs to be brought into the order of the mind. That, that's it's just another shape of Gnosticism. Yes, yes. I, what about this for Gnosticism? I yeah. think that when we hear our friends in the say the Baptist Church say that baptism is a work and therefore it cannot save, that that also is a form of Gnosticism because they're saying because it's physical, it can't be spiritual. Right. Right. 
Okay. And, so- and for them is not, well, I mean, in that same way, and this, this certainly ties in, by the way, so this is not an offshoot. This is very much where, where he's going with this, but because the sacramental reality of the body is where he wants to go with this. So, so with that same thing, for, for the Baptist construct of baptism, it is an external sign of an internal reality, and that internal reality is a decision that I've made within my will towards God. Okay. Now let's get uh, let's get to John Paul. Then, so lead, uh, give us a yeah. taste of uh, maybe so, what he what he says. Right. So with that, and this this is where this at least begins to tie in. Um, let me. I'm, I'm going to maybe jump around a little bit and just read little snippets of it. But this one in particular, he says. In this activity, that is, the structure of the body, such that it permits him to be the author of genuinely human activity, the body expresses the person. Okay, so just stop there. He he goes on for, for a bit, but when he says that the body expresses the person, he is facing us up to the reality that who we are can only be engaged with the very physicality of our being. So, so in that way, when I look at you, talk with you, hear you, see you, and that sort of thing, I am engaging you and, and who you are as this, and, and he's going to wrestle through some of the Greek constructs of what it means to be man, and, and he really criticizes Plato for the idea of there being a soul and a body in this duality, where he speaks more of a composite of this body, soul, and spirit that don't have, as he says, such clear boundaries, where there is this way in which we are infused in our very being, and that finds its expression as we encounter the the body, the person. I I don't think I would have used the word expresses. The body expresses it, but I can't think of what better word I would use. Well, and I, I should be clear that this is a translation. I believe it was originally in Latin, but um, I mean, not Latin, in Italian, actually, I think. Um, but, it, but it is a translation. Well, why don't you uh, give us the original Italian? Reveal. Oh, I don't have the original Italian. <laughs> Get out of here. Come uh, on. I want, come on, Jim. I want, you to, I want you to translate it in the fly from <laughs> Italian into Latin. Um, I would guess it's something along the lines of either express or reveal. And, and the idea there being, as he traces it out sacramentally, because he wants to make the case that when you encounter bread, you are in fact encountering the very body of Christ as he gives himself to us. He might, being a Roman Catholic, slightly differing from us on the mechanics of this, say that that bread as such no longer exists, but nonetheless, its external accidents, its form does. As Lutherans, I think we would be even more clear to say, yes, by encountering the bread as such, you are encountering the body of Christ himself. Now, how so? What, so, what would be the opposite of that? By the way, the body conceals the person, or the body um, distorts. Gets, well, yeah, it gets in the way. I mean, so I think that's our normal discourse: is that who I am 
is being maligned by the body I bear. I mean, that's that's this whole. I mean, we're this is so timely. I think today, with the various forms of gender dysphoria, uh, the confusion that we have of our own human sexuality and so forth, this idea that who I am at some sort of essential core is really in my either feeling or emotion or mind, but not in my body. Mm. And I, I think where that comes from, at least to be most charitable, I think there is something that recognizes in our bodies the fallenness that we bear by sin. Mm. Right? Do, you, do you think it's easier to feel in the body than it is in the in the in the soul or the spirit or the mind the heart it, I don't know. I don't know about you but look in the mirror oh I think not, you see it yeah well yeah that's you true see, you see the imperfections in your body especially right. as you see how that body compares with what you're given to see through media oh i see so, yeah so so i think it's it's always before us the fallenness of the body Sometimes it's before us the fallenness of our mind when we face conversations or school or, you know, I mean, where, where we are challenged in our thinking and we can, we can actually see, I can't figure that out, so-and-so can figure that out, I can see my own fallenness that way, but, but that's, I think, less before us. Do you, do you think it, it's like, um, what, how, how can we do, think that, I've never thought through this in this way, but like the... The, the the flesh when we talk about the flesh this category that saint paul gives us it's the it's our fallen nature it's it's both the body and spirit it's not like the flesh is the body the uh the flesh is the sinful part of both my body and my mind and my heart and every, it's everything that's sinful and so the flesh has sinful desires but we we those desires manifest themselves more positively in the in our body and more negatively in the mind. So when I think about the sins of the mind, it's the things that I don't want to do. I don't want to pray. I don't want to engage in God's word. I don't want to suffer for the name of Jesus. In the body, those things come out as positive expressions. There's greed and there's there's rebellion and there's lust and there's anger. So that so that the way that the the desires of the flesh kind of echo through our physical body versus echo through our mind take on opposite shapes. Yeah, I, I think so. And then you bring in the fallen will and and the emotions and how we perceive these things. Uh, really, from that from that perspective, that's also fallen. And yet, I think we're least susceptible to say that I can feel wrongly. You know, I mean, um, our culture, I think, is is producing works that are especially appealing to the fact that you can't. Tell me I'm feeling wrongly about something. Yes. That is an amazing thing. We, I mean, we, we should know better just from the ninth and 10th commandments. You shall not, um, you shall not covet means that even mm -hmm. our emotions and our feelings come under the jurisdiction of God's law. But that has been mostly lost. Hey Jeff, we got so we got like a minute and a half to this next break. Can you so so throw another log in the fire? Give us another piece of the theology of the body to chew on over the break, and then we'll come back to it. Okay, good. Uh, well, let's try this one because I've got a couple other directions to go. But let's let's try this one. He says um, this is uh, addressing Genesis with the unity becoming one flesh. He says when they unite with each other in this conjugal act. 
so closely as to become one flesh, man and woman rediscover every time and in a special way the mystery of creation, thus returning to the union in humanity, flesh from my flesh and bone from my bones, that allows them to recognize each other reciprocally and to call each other by name as they did the first time. Mm. Okay. So um, in this way, the fact that they become one flesh uh, is this mysterious bond that returns them to who they are in their created identity and recognizing in that act uh, a, a participation in this mystery. And, and I think in that, there's certainly loads that he unpacks with that, but, but to start to think about that, I mean, the act of even, as he calls it, the conjugal act, as a participation in the mystery of creation. This is something, all right, we're going to be back in 90 seconds. So you got Good. 90 seconds to think about that. <laughs> and then you could come back on the other side and see how that went. Uh, if we were thinking along the same lines, Pastor Jeff Boyle is our guest here on Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Uh, stay tuned. We'll be back in just a few minutes. The story of Worldwide KFUO is a tale of technology. Radio was new in 1924 when KFUO was born to serve Christ the Savior. Now, KFUO is still finding new broadcast technologies so we can spread the gospel to the world via the web, smartphones, tablets, and new intelligent speaker devices. And when the next big thing is unveiled, we'll be there too. Broadcasting the good news at the forefront of technology, we are Worldwide KFUO. Three things make a believer. Oratio, meditatio, tentatio. Prayer, meditation, and growth. Which is why every weekday morning from 7 to 8 a.m. we bring you Oratio, an hour of solace, contemplation, scripture, sacred music, and faith. Oratio, the dawn breaks with prayer every morning on Worldwide KFUO. The Liberty Bell is one of America's most iconic monuments. Encircling the bell are words from Leviticus 25.10. Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. In 1751, the Speaker of the Pennsylvania Assembly ordered a bell placed at the Pennsylvania State House, now Independence Hall in Philadelphia. It was likely commissioned to commemorate the 50th anniversary of William Penn's Charter of Privileges, which outlined Penn's ideas of rights and freedoms. It was adopted as Pennsylvania's original constitution. It became known as the Liberty Bell when abolitionists adopted it as their symbol and efforts to put an end to slavery in America. An exact replica is prominently displayed in the Bible in America section at Museum of the Bible, a reminder of the Bible's impact on the history of the United States. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Welcome back to Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfman. I've got on the line Pastor Jeff Boyle, pastor of... Where are you? You have a couple of congregations. I should have this written down so I can make the announcement myself. Which Say it slowly so I can type it into my page here. 
Grace Lutheran and Trinity Lutheran, Wichita, Kansas. Grace and Trinity. Which is your favorite? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so, <laughs> so we have the... Uh, so, so you left us... Um, with this, uh, this uh, st- what is kind of a stunning, loaded sentence yeah. from John Paul in Theology of the Body. The act of marriage is um, l- lets husband and wife, and the unity of, fl- of the one flesh unity of the a- act of marriage, it restore it, it brings us back to the creation. It lets husband and wife see each other and know each other and call each other by name. There were so, mu- so many things that are, yeah. were in there. What? And there there was a lot in there, and it, and it was nuanced as such. So it wasn't simply that we magically returned to creation, but it was more that we are participating in the very life and unity that God had in creation made us to be. And and so there's, um, as he starts off his reflection. I mean, these, these are lectures after lectures, but it's, he's working his way through Genesis 1 and 2. Okay, so this is still um, still working through what it means in each of these stories in Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1, he focuses on the fact that God simply says, let us make man in his image. In the image of God, he created a male and female, he created them. And it's, it's just bam. Whereas Genesis 2 has the sort of unfolding from what he calls a more subjective perspective as opposed to the objective or divine perspective in Genesis 1. He sees Genesis 2 as, as how it, in fact, unfolded from, from man's perspective and the coming out from the rib. And, and so there's this sense in which everything is good. There is this strange, it was not good for the man to be alone. And in the naming of the animals and so forth, God takes Adam, puts him to sleep, takes out from his very rib, a, a, and, and forms her into a woman, and then presents her to the man. And, and it's at that point where he sings his love song that recognizes in her himself. And so Pope John Paul II is saying now, even today, even in our fallenness, uh, we are participating in that very unity that God had intended and established before the fall for humanity. Hmm. That's, now, now this is so. This explains a handful of things. But just to make this point very clear, that every Christian ought to have in their mind, and that is that the act of marriage. Um, it, that that our sexual ethic begins with the recognition that the act of of marriage is, to say it at the very least, is something particularly profound. Yeah. And it is. There's no way. That, so the the lie that the culture wants to tell is that there is such a thing as. And maybe young listeners, parents, you want to be careful about the language that we might have to use for this conversation. But the culture would want to to say that there is a an understanding of casual sex, and mm-hmm. and we say at the very least that that is that that does not exist. That there is something particularly profound. And Paul will say this: that every other sin a person commits outside the body. But sexual immorality is committed inside the body. Mm-hmm. We, 
And, exactly. and we want to think of what as, as sex is almost a purely bodily act, and that is a profound lie. Uh, and that yeah. It insults God the Creator and our own humanity. So, so with that, Pope John Paul II throughout this wants us to constantly return to even the language, like, to mark our discourse about this, to always remember the sanctity of marriage and the dignity of the body. Hmm. Where, where this marital bond is pronounced, just as we say in our, in our wedding rites, you know, when, when we are getting ready to marry a couple, there's the dearly beloved portion where we speak of the reasons for which God instituted this. But one of the things we say is that this was instituted before the fall into sin. Mm-hmm. Like, there is this holiness that is right. attached to this unity of the flesh, of the bodies. Um, and in that, we are, uh, as Luther would say, performing a good work. Hmm. We, that's one of my favorite parts of the marriage rite, by the way, is that may God give you the blessing that he gave to Adam and Eve in paradise. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. here's husband and wife, and you're just, you're going back to the garden. It's is so wonderful. Oh. Exactly, yeah. and, and I think that's really what he's trying to capture here, is that um, now, um, how often does our culture, do even, do even we, as the Church, um, think of this conjugal act as this mysterious participation in Eden, really, or in, in, in at least the creation's uh, unfolding of humanity. I, I mean, we, we think of, uh, of it as shameful, right. and, and oftentimes a shamefulness that forces it into the darkness, which is where all sorts of problems arise. There is you know, this... I mean, this this uh, I mean, utter this right? kind of foundational mm-hmm. confusion that we see our bodies as a tool rather than seeing our bodies as ourself, and that gets mm-hmm. dis- that distorts everything. It distorts work. It distorts marriage. It distorts the it distorts our uh, the act of marriage. It distorts our it, it, everything gets distorted as, as when we when we what separate ourselves from our body and recognize the body as like a vehicle or a tool rather than our very self and then then every we're off the rails at the beginning and then and then it just is wide open for the devil's kind of coercive attacks he can direct yeah. us this way and that now and with that john paul ii will speak of that shame he's got great reflections on the shame and and particularly shame as it's identified with our nakedness right so so when you go back to Genesis 2.25, where they did not feel shame, you know, the man and the woman were both naked, and it's, it's not a throwaway, a throwaway line at the end of Genesis 2. That certainly, um, that very instant of them being naked without shame will certainly play out in Genesis 3, when they realize they are naked, and they require, they are so ashamed, they require to cover themselves. Uh. I'd, so that, you, that so, is loaded. I was reading Luther on this, who picks up on the idea of the Church Fathers. Now, I don't think Luther's convinced, and then neither am I, but I'm intrigued by this. I'd love mm-hmm. to know what you think, that that the, this idea in the Church Fathers that Adam and Eve and their creation were radiant, that, like Jesus at the Transfiguration. They were, mm-hmm. they, they were kind of beings of light, and when they fell, that light was diminished, and this is why they recognized their own nakedness. 
Yeah, so I, I struggle with that myself a little bit because um, on the most charitable side, I think that they are rightly recognizing that in our createdness, we do share and participate in, in who God is in himself, in the image of God, in Christ being the image of the invisible God, reveals himself in the transfiguration through this gloriously bright light. And so if that's how Christ is revealed, so to speak, on earth, so also are we. Okay, fair enough, I could see that. And yet at the same time, we shouldn't see it. I don't know if we could even hear that without the sort of superhero mentality that's around us, like Cyclops or something. All right, yeah. We're going to run out of time like we always do. So uh, I understand everything that you said and everything that John Paul said, but I'm asking for a friend. Could you yeah. could you give us some simple takeaway points? Just for a friend, you know, not not for me. Of, of course. Well, um, we've, we've barely scratched the surface of this. Um, and I, I would say that this is a book that does require a Lutheran to read, to, to unpack, maybe to simplify. We, we need to be doing our part to recognize the sanctity and dignity of the body, marriage, the, the conjugal act, what it means for us to be married, to be human, um, our sexuality. One of the big things that he gives us to, I think, take away wonderfully is what he calls the mutual gift, the character of mutual gift, or he calls it the hermeneutics of gift even, uh, where in marriage we are giving ourselves to the other, and in that gift giving, we are doing a disservice to them if we are not also receiving them as gift. But there's this mutual character to that. And where that breaks down, we see many of the problems in our own marriage. Uh, we see uh, many of the you know, problems of our own humanity and our sexuality and, and how that works. When we turn the other into an object to be used, uh, that's where we are distorting how God has made them. Um, he's got a whole section on pornography. He's got a section on celibacy, which I think requires all the more of looking at today in light of what's going on in the Church, the Catholic Church in particular. Um, but, but where he's bringing us back throughout is how it was in the beginning. So like you? when the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, you know, uh, try, try to catch him up on, on whose wife will she be and, and, and so forth. And, and Jesus says, it was not so from the beginning. Hmm. Can, can, and Pope John Paul wants us to come back to that. Can you rec uh, just wrestle for a couple of minutes with the irony of this? When, when the when Luther, for example, took up the criticism of the Roman Catholic Church in the Large Catechism, he criticized them as Gnostics, and especially yeah. the idea of clerical celibacy as a denial of the the echoing of God's word, "Be fruitful and multiply" in the human flesh. Uh, um, mm -hmm. And, and hmm. so, so. Uh, the, do you see some irony there, or? Yeah. Oh, so that's that's why I'm so intrigued by this because he's wrestling with the very idea of self. So what he's doing is, he's making a case for, and he'll say this explicitly that marriage and the celibate life are not to be placed above or below the other, but are to mutually uphold the church. He says as well as recognizing that celibacy is first a gift from God, 
and secondly, to be accepted by those to whom it's given, and yet they have an ability to accept it or not. Even if Rome ran with that, there would there would be a freedom from this coerced celibacy that we seem to see producing all sorts of problems. Yeah, because you can't just you can't escape the fact that that is a, I mean, oh. the, the kind of forced clerical celibacy is the same as as yeah. the transgender problem. You're you're just trying to you're. Hmm. You're completely fighting against the preaching of God in the, the the good preaching of God that is in the body that says be fruitful and multiply. Exactly, and um, I mean we we see that um, throughout the history of the church, and there's always this bend towards Gnosticism or this desire to, and I think that's her fallenness. And, I, I can't believe yeah. the timer, the the clock, the countdown timer now starts. So, the, <laughs> okay, we're there done. was a question at the time of the Reformation that said, "Are we sin?" And and some Lutherans were preaching that way. They answered it and they said, "No, we can't be sin because these four things. Look, God created us; He didn't create sin. Christ became right. man; He didn't become sin. Jesus saved us; He didn't save sin. And our mm-hmm. bodies will be resurrected. Sin will not be resurrected. So there is a distinction between." between who we are and sin and we see it in creation incarnation salvation and resurrection and meditating on these things gives us a right way to understand that that we are sinners but we are not sin we still belong to god uh, maybe 30 seconds on that uh, i would say where we see that most fully and uh, i'd say mysteriously but wonderfully is in the ascension of christ where now man sits on the throne of god and we see in Christ's ascension our own human destiny uh, as those bearing body that is redeemed by Christ. So, um, so I, I, I certainly agree that our humanity as such is not sin, and yet we can't have this humanity, in, at least in this life, apart from sin's effects, and, and we long for the forgiveness that comes in Christ. Jesus created your body, he gave you your body, and he will put you back in your body on the last day. This is a, yes. a beautiful theology of the body that we have there. And and to pick up on what you said there, Pastor Boyd, there's a way that, for example, St. John in the Revelation sees everything falling apart in the world and thinks that it must be that... The, the, that God has forgotten about us, he's not in control, but then he'll get a glimpse of the throne room of heaven where everything is being run, and there on the throne is the Lamb as he has been slain. The body of Jesus, the body that was born of the Virgin Mary, the body that hung on the cross, the body that was laid in the tomb, that body was raised on the third day and taken up to the right hand of the glory of God. And one day, with our own flesh and our own eyes, we will see him, our Lord Jesus, in the flesh as well. We are not simply souls riding around in Cadillac bodies. We are... We are the body expresses our person. Hey, pa- Pastor Boyle, thanks for being on the show today. Oh, thank you. It was my honor. Uh, this is Cross Fence, Pastor Brian Wolfman. Thanks for listening. We'll catch up with you next week. God's peace be with you.
listening to Cross Defense, produced by Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Your support is vital for this program to continue. To learn about giving opportunities, call Mary at 314-996-1518. Or you can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO.